you're listening to a City on a Hill podcast. We'd love you to use and share this podcast, but please refrain from editing the content without permission from City on a Hill. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au. When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, the mind of Pharaoh and his servants was changed toward the people, and they said, What is this we have done, that we have let Israel go from serving us? So he made ready his chariot, and took his army with him, and took six hundred chosen chariots, and all the other chariots of Egypt with officers over all of them. And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, And he pursued the people of Israel while the people of Israel were going out defiantly. The Egyptians pursued them, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots and his horsemen and his army, and overtook them encamped at the sea by Pi-Hahiroth in front of Baal-Zephon. When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians. For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. And Moses said to the people, Fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. The Lord said to Moses, Why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward. Lift up your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it, that the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground. And I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians, so that they shall go in after them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host, his chariots and his horsemen. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord, when I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots, and his horsemen. Then the angel of the Lord who was going before the host of Israel moved and went behind them, and the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them, coming between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel. And there was the cloud and the darkness, and it lit up the night without one coming near the other all night. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night, and made the sea dry land, and the waters were divided. And the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. The Egyptians pursued and went in after them into the midst of the sea, 
all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, and his horsemen. And in the morning watch, the Lord in the pillar of fire and of cloud looked down on the Egyptian forces and threw the Egyptian forces into a panic, clogging their chariot wheels so that they drove heavily. And the Egyptians said, Let us flee from before Israel, for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the sea, that the water may come back upon the Egyptians, upon their chariots and upon their horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the sea returned to its normal course when the morning appeared. And as the Egyptians fled into it, the Lord threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. The water returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen of all the host of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea, not one of them remained. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. Thus, the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians. And Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians. So the people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord and in his servant, Moses. Well, good day, City on a Hill. Wonderful to be with you. Uh, so great that we can connect together in this way. Uh, if you're just checking in for the first time, my name is Guy, and uh, it's my joy and privilege to serve as the pastor of City on a Hill, a movement of churches united around the central mission of knowing Jesus and making Jesus known. You know, there's this fascinating uh, moment uh, that we read in the Gospel of Luke. Two guys uh, are walking a road. One is named Cleopas. The other is unnamed. So for the sake of the story, let's call him Frank. Uh, Cleopas and Frank are making a 12-kilometer journey from Jerusalem to Emmaus. And why are they leaving Jerusalem? They're leaving Jerusalem because it was there that they witnessed with their own eyes their friend and Lord Jesus suffer a brutal and bloody death. Jesus was the one that they looked to. Jesus was the one that they had left everything for. And Jesus was the one that they believed was going to rescue them from the empire of Rome. And yet they had seen Rome put the dagger to Jesus. And so they've left Jerusalem and they are on this road. Word on the street is that there's some women going around saying that the tomb of Jesus is empty and that Jesus is alive, but these two guys can't bring themselves to believe it. And so they've left Jerusalem and they're heading back, back to their families, back to their old jobs, back to a life without Jesus. But as they take this walk, they're greeted by a man, and not just any man. Who is this man? This man is Jesus. And he says, what is, this that you are, what is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? And they've both got their heads down and unable to recognize who it is. And so Cleopas says, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? 
And Jesus says, what things? And Cleopas says, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people. And how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning. And when they did not find the body, they came back saying that they had seen a vision of angels who said that Jesus was alive. And Jesus says to them, Oh, foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And then note this, verse 20 to verse 27. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. There is so much to love about this encounter. Now, I love that Jesus is willing to pursue the skeptic. I mean, these two guys, they had given up on Jesus. And yet here we see that Jesus had not given up on them. He pursues them. He finds them. In addition, don't you love how earthy and grounded that that scene is? You know, often when we think about encounters with God, we imagine that, you know, the the clouds opening and thunder and, and lightning. And yet here is Jesus meeting them on the road, in the ordinary, his feet on the dirt. But perhaps what is most remarkable about this scene is the way in which Jesus chooses to reveal himself to these two men. You know, when it comes to revealing the truth of his identity, when it comes to revealing uh, his part in God's plan of salvation, when it comes to their redemption, Jesus doesn't call in an army of angels. Uh, He doesn't perform another miracle. He doesn't host an evangelistic course, giving them the 10 reasons why they should believe in the resurrection of Jesus. No. What does Jesus do? He runs a Bible study, beginning with Moses and all the prophets. Jesus explains to them, explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. Today, you and I are diving into what may be the defining moment in Moses's life. In fact, the Exodus is is perhaps one of the pinnacle moments in all of the scriptures, right? And it's this gripping story. It's this tense story. It's this dramatic story. But we need to keep in mind that the Exodus is far more than a compelling story. According to Jesus and the New Testament writers, the Exodus is ultimately and primarily a foreshadowing of who Jesus is and what he has accomplished for us all. In other words, if you are wrestling with your faith today, uh, if you're wanting to really know the beauty of Jesus and the truth and the relevance of his salvation, Jesus would take you to Exodus. He's going to take you to Exodus. So like the two disciples on the road to Amasis, we're going to, we're going to sit by the road. We're going to open the story 
of Moses. And we are going to let Jesus explain to us who he is and the glory of his salvation. And so if you have a Bible handy, why don't you turn with me now to Exodus chapter 14. Uh, For those who are checking into our series, it's helpful to know that uh, following the 10th and final plague, the Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, had decided to let God's people go. But God knows that things are not always as they seem. Uh, Look to verse 1. Then the Lord said to Moses, Tell the people of Israel to turn back and encamp in front of Piaharoth, between Migdal and the sea, in front of Baal Zephon. You shall encamp facing it by the sea. Right? So Israel are making their escape from Egypt. But if they take the most direct route, they will come into uh, Philistine territory and face uh, conflict immediately. And so God diverts the route and, and calls them to come back by the wilderness and camp by the sea. Now, in our day, the sea is a picture of adventure and holiday and discovery. But in the ancient world, the sea was an unknown, deep and dark void. You didn't know what lied within. All of which to say that when Israel approached the sea, the sight of the sea, the sound of the sea, they would have been met with uncertainty. They would have been met with fear. They would have seen a sea of chaos, right? Chaos is the realm of the unknown. Uh, It's unknown territory. In the words of Jordan Peterson, chaos is where we are when we don't know where we are and what we are doing when we don't know what we are doing. It is, in short, all those things and situations we neither know nor understand. And yet it is here, it is here into the unknown that God has led his people. But back in Egypt, the king of Pharaoh Well, no surprises here. He's had a change of mind. Verse 5, when the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, the mind of Pharaoh and his servants was changed towards the people. And they said, what is this we have done that we have let Israel go from serving us? Right. So fueled with anger, we're told that the Pharaoh jumps onto his chariot. He calls the whole army uh, of Egypt together and puts in motion 600 chariots to hunt down Israel. Now we need to appreciate that at this time in history, that the chariot was the most deadly, uh, terrible instrument of death known to man. It's the, the machine guns of World War I, the, the nuclear weapon of the modern age. All of which to say that that Israel are right now outnumbered. Uh, They are cornered. uh, They are outgunned. And so verse 10, look with me there. When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them and they, what? Feared greatly. They see the army and they feared greatly greatly. What is fear? What is fear? Fear is the the rapid beating of the heart, the the loss of oxygen. Fear is the, the walk through the dark alley at night, the snake hidden under the rock. Fear is the monster in the closet, the the lockdown that knows no end. And fear is a major theme, isn't it, in the book of Exodus? Right? The question in Exodus is not if we fear, 
or even what we fear. The question is, who will we fear? Will we fear God or will we fear man? Verse 10, when Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them and they feared greatly. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians. Israel do not fear God. It is clear in this moment that they fear man. And do you see how this fear takes a hold of them? They go from trusting Moses to blaming Moses to accusing Moses. Bear in mind that Moses is God's divine representative. So their rebellion against him is not just rebellion against man, it's rebellion against God. And notice also how Israel not only start accusing Moses, they actually start reframing the past. They actually start claiming that they never wanted to leave Egypt at all, right? It's a bit like a marriage turned sour. You may have noticed this where the husband starts reframing the story, saying, I never got, wanted to get married in the first place, right? Here is Israel claiming they never wanted to be delivered from Egypt. Is that true? Of course it's not true. The first chapters, all the chapters in, that we've read thus far are, are saturated with the tears of Israel as they wept for the Lord and cried out for his deliverance. Did they want to be slaves forever? No, they wanted to be free. And yet in their freedom, they are living like slaves. Martin Lloyd-Jones uses the example of um, slaves that were freed under President Lincoln during the Civil War. Right? You need to remember that up until this point, if you were a slave, you had no rights, no freedom. You couldn't vote. You were under the hold of an oppressive slave master. Lincoln's Emancipation Proclamation declared that slaves were finally and legally free. But of course, many of the slaves had known no other life. They'd been slaves their whole life. And so if you were in town and a white person called you out, ordered you around, abused you, you were afraid and you did what they demanded you to do. Why? Because even though you know in your head, I am free, in your heart, you still felt held. The point here is that you can take a man out of slavery, but it's far more difficult to take slavery out of a man. And here lies a key insight for those of us who are in Jesus, right? Listen, in Jesus, we know we've been delivered from sin, right? We've been set free. The slave master of our old life is gone. We belong to Jesus. But isn't it also true that those same sins, those old idols, that old slave master still has a way to make demands on your life and to come after you and to try and draw you back, right? Maybe you were enslaved to work. Maybe that's where you tapped your meaning in, in climbing the corporate ladder and, and in your success was where you found your significance. 
Today, you know you've been freed by Jesus. Today, you know you have a new and glorious identity. But that doesn't take away the pressure of those previous demands in that old life. Maybe uh, you were once enslaved to romance and sex. I used to sleep around, used to watch porn, used to date somebody you know you shouldn't have dated. Today, you're a Christian. Today, you've been born again. Today, you're a new creation and you have a new life. But that doesn't always mean that that old life won't try and call you back and come knocking at that door. Maybe, maybe your old life was was worshipping religion. You found, you, let's say you grew up in a home where being perfect, being morally good was how you found your place. It was how you were accepted. And then you found Jesus and, and he took you off that religious treadmill and you lived by his grace alone. And yet isn't it true that time and time again, you'll feel that temptation to build your identity on your works and your morality. I know in my own life, if I look in my rearview mirror, I can see uh, that there were times in my past where I had an unhealthy relationship with money, right? So I grew up believing that, that money was God, the Savior, the one who would get me to the promised land. And if I, if I had money, I felt good. And if I didn't, I, I felt afraid. And I met Jesus. I was born again and I was given something worth infinitely more than gold. But does that mean I don't at times find myself thinking unnecessarily about my finances, watching the bank account, being afraid of where things might go? This is where Christians need to understand that salvation is both a work of justification and sanctification. Justification speaks of our legal standing before God. In Jesus, good news, you are legally free. You are righteous. You've been declared right before God. But sanctification speaks of God's ongoing work to transform you, to renew our minds and redeem our heart. The moment you put in your trust in Jesus, you are saved. Right? You are out of Egypt, but God is determined to get Egypt out of you. And so part of what we need here, City on a Hill, is a willingness to embrace the truth. Right? As Israel journeys through the wilderness, one of the things you'll notice is that they have rose-colored glasses. Right? When they look back, they're delusional in their thinking. They keep convincing themselves with a lie that their slave masters were great, not realizing that the slave masters only ever wanted their demise. I mean, even here, they're coming after them. Don't make the same mistake. The truth is, whenever you build your life on anything or anyone apart from God, it will not only rule you, but in the end, it will destroy you. Uh, listen to these words by David Foster Wallace. He says, in the day-to-day -day, uh, trenches of adult life, there is no such thing as atheism. There's no such thing as not worshipping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. If you worship money and things, if they are where the, you tap real meaning in life, then you'll never have enough. Never feel you have enough. It's the truth. 
Worship your own body and beauty and sexual allure and you'll always feel ugly. And when time and age starts showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally plant you. Worship power and you'll feel weak and afraid. And you'll need even more power over others to keep that fear at bay. Worship your intellect, being seen as smart. You'll end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. Don't you admire the honesty, the truth in those words? Listen, in Jesus, we are a freed people. You have been freed from a vain and futile life. You've been freed from worldly deceit. You have been freed from an empty and false fear. And what is it that drives away our fear and fuels our faith? Listen to these Incredible words. Verse 13, Moses, before an afraid and confused people, he says to them and he says to you, fear not, stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you and you have only to be silent. Do you notice how Moses frames Israel's salvation and this moment as a fight, right? He's under no illusions. I love this, right? He knows that the walk out of Egypt was never going to be easy. It's a battle and they need to know that. They need to recognize this ain't going to be easy. This is going to be a fight. And I want to remind us today that, that being a Christian listen, is not going to be easy. It's a battle. It's a fight. And you know why? Because there is a very real enemy. For Israel, like it's visual. They see Pharaoh. They see the the chariots, right? But you and I know what Paul saw, and that is that our battle is not against flesh and blood, but the powers and principalities that reign over dark and crooked world, right? The Bible says, Uh, The devil is like a lion who prowls around looking to devour. He's a thief who comes to destroy. And we forget this. I was listening to a podcast uh, with Joe Rogan and he was talking about middleweight champion Marvin Hagler. And this guy, man, he's legit. He is determined, this boxer. He knows how to push his body in ways that most of us don't know how to push. And there's this actual footage of him uh, running in the freezing cold up Cape Cod, uh, sand dunes, middle of winter, freezing cold. He's training his body. He's got a hoodie on and the whole time he's screaming out, war, war, war. Right? And I love that mindset. And I think we need that mindset. Listen, when you get sluggish with prayer, when you are feeling distracted, from your Bible reading, when your heart is cold to those who need your help, when there is pressure in the workplace to to be silent on your faith, when the temptations of the world come to call you back, what do we do, City on a Hill? We put the hoodie on and we say, war, because this is a fight. We're in the ring. And so stand your ground. And remember, though, (laughs) that this is not our fight. Did you see that? Did you see what Moses says? He says, stand 
firm, note this, for it is the Lord who will fight for you. I still remember the day like yesterday. I think I was in grade four uh, in, in primary school. And uh, they were these older kids, I think, you know, grade six, but they just look like giants to me. And, and they love to like throw around their weight. And I didn't mind, you know, giving the odd right hook, but, but these guys were like, they're always there. And, and they just made life so difficult. And I remember sharing this with my older brother and uh, I had reluctance to go to this school fate because I just didn't want to be around these guys or to be bullied by them anymore. And my brother says, well, I'll come along with you. Now, my brother's about four or five years older than me, but he was like a giant to me. Uh, and uh, I don't know what stage he was going through, but from memory, he had like Doc Martens up to here, ripped jeans, a Guns N' Roses t-shirt. And as we're at the fate, he says, can you point out to me these guys? And then I point him out. Next thing, he disappears. 20 minutes later, he comes back. I'm like, what happened? He says, I had a chat with those guys. Now, I don't know what his version of a chat actually was, but, but I never saw those guys again. In other words, they, they didn't come after me in any way from that point. Here's what I want you to know. When it comes to the schoolyard of this world, when it comes to the opposition in your life and salvation and the many things that are trying to bring you down and pull you back, remember, you don't fight alone. In fact, strike that. You don't fight at all. For God is with you and God fights for you. Think about that. I know this is a trying time for our world. It's a testing and frustrating time for me personally. You know, here in, in my home city of Melbourne, it's been so encouraging to see the city come alive. It's taken months, but finally the cafes are open and uh, people are out and the sun is shining and, and, and churches are, are meeting. And, and, and in Melbourne, we're seeing people give their life to Jesus and communities building. And it's just like, yes, yes, and amen. And then you read the news, two cases, 10 cases, boom, lockdown, right? So frustrating. It's like two steps forward, 18 steps back. And it's hard. Man chatting to like the local barista and he's seeing his business crumble. Talking with families who are pulling out their hair, trying to deal with remote learning. Friends, family, living alone. It's hard. It's really hard. Hard times call for a great God. Hard times call for a great God. When we know this, when we take time to really consider that God is with us and fighting for us, it changes everything. No longer do I need to be running in fear. We get to rest in God. Think about that. What would it look like for you today, this week, to rest in God, knowing the greater is He who is in me than he who is in the world. Rest in that. Rest that he's powerful. Rest in the knowledge that he's loving. Rest in the promise that what he says, he accomplishes. We worship a great God who is for his people. And look at the glory of what happens next. 
Verse 15, the Lord says to Moses, why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward. Go forward, lift up your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it that the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground. And I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they shall go in after them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts, his chariots and his horsemen. Right, so Israel are hemmed in. They are cornered. There is death before them and death behind them. And what does God do? What does God always do? God makes a way, right? God makes a way. Verse 21, check this. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea and the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night and made the sea dry land and the waters were divided. And the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground, the waters being a wall to them on the right hand and on the left. You know, across the years, a lot of people uh, have tried to debate the historical accuracy of this moment. And they come up with all of these creative solutions to try and explain how the Red Sea parted. And one of the most popular common that you may have come across is they'll suggest to you that at this point in time, the water was particularly shallow, right? Really, really shallow so that all of Israel could just basically walk on through. Make sense? Of course not, because the waters that day not only parted for Israel so that they could walk through, it swallowed up Pharaoh and all of his army. So how do you explain such an extraordinary moment in time? How do we reconcile what we read in Scripture with the natural order of life? You don't. And that's the point. The point of Exodus is to lift our eyes to the glory and the supremacy of God, right? He is the God who can turn the Nile into a sea of blood. He is the God who can empower Moses and turn his staff into a snake. He is the God who can harden the heart of Pharaoh himself and sitting on a hill, he is the God who can make a way through the sea and chaos of this world, right? This is not the natural order of creation. This is the God who transcends creation as our creator, Lord of all, Lord of all, Lord of all. And what I want you to note in the parting of the Red Sea is not only the the supremacy of God, but the unique uh, dynamic of His grace, right? This is a, a testimony here of God's good grace. You need to ask yourself, where was Israel when they were camping by the Red Sea, right? What were they doing? They were confused, they were afraid, they were blaming, they were accusing Moses, they were raising their fists at God, right? As the psalmist says, when our ancestors were in Egypt, they gave no thought to your miracles, they did not remember your many kindnesses, and they rebelled by the sea, the Red Sea, right? So when we imagine Israel waiting for their deliverance, we're not to imagine them sitting by campfires, roasting marshmallows, Sing and shout to the Lord. This is a people in rebellion. 
These are a people who are, who've given up on God. Some of them perhaps are probably worshiping the idols of Egypt, hoping that their gods could get them out of this mess. But thanks be to God that his salvation isn't about our perfection, our religious resolve. It's not about us at all. This is, as Moses says, his salvation. This is about his mercy. This is about his grace. You know, just recently, uh, my wife and I um, went into a local car yard. We're looking for a, a used car, secondhand car. We went into this car yard. I won't name the car yard, but it was one of those car yards where it's like all the various kind of different car yards are all in the one, you know, place. And they're there. And anyway, we meet this guy in the car yard. We're greeted by a guy called Freddie. And Freddie, uh, he's rugged up. It's a cold Melbourne morning. He's rugged up in a jacket. He's got a beanie on. And, and he sees this opportunity to pitch a car to us. And I think his kind of opening line was, how many kids do you guys have? And I said, four. And he's like, Jesus, don't you have a TV? And uh, we, we laughed. I think it was Jimmy Gaffigan who said that large families are a bit like waterbed stores. Um, they used to be everywhere. Now they're just weird. Uh, once Freddie uh, worked out, uh, that he didn't have a car big enough uh, to sell us anything. He began, it was really interesting, he started basically talking about the car selling industry and giving us all of these warnings. He says, well, you know, don't, you know, don't get the, uh, the warranty from these guys over there. They'll sell it to you for about a grand. It's actually only worth about 70 bucks and they're just crooks. They're trying to rip you off and, and, and make sure if you get a car tested, roadworthy, go to RACV because these guys have their own contacts and they're paid under the table and it's a total con. In fact, if I were you, I, I wouldn't buy a used car full stop because the whole industry is corrupt, right? And he's, and he's sharing this and, and, and then some, something kind of turns in him. It's really interesting. He says, you know, sometimes I leave the car yard and, you know, I, I, I've realized that I've fallen. You know, I've, I, I've sold things here that I shouldn't. I'm trying to make money, but sometimes I, I feel like I'm going to hell, right? I, I said to my wife, you know, like if I sell another one of those cheap Hyundais, I'm going to hell. And he turns to me and says, so what do you do for a living? I said, well, uh, actually, uh, I was fumbled at this point. I'm like, oh, actually, I'm a church pastor. And he's like, whoa. It's like he's seen a ghost at this point. Who would have thought confessing his biggest, darkest sins? And here I am. And, and it was interesting because, you know, I, I, I admired this, uh, you know, about Freddie. You know, he went on to share how you know, he really struggles with this. He's trying to make ends meet. You know, he's trying to put food on the table, yet he recognized that he falls short and he recognized that that created distance from God. And I admired that about him. It's one thing to be able to push, uh, point the finger at the sins of other people around us. But Freddie had this ability to own his own sin. And there's something about that that we see in Exodus time and time again. We're confronted, aren't we, with the realities of sin, that sin does separate us from God and that there is judgment. You know, whether it's the violence of Pharaoh, the oppression of the Egyptians, whether it's the the rebellion of Israel, whether it's Freddie's sin, my sin, your sin, we all fall short and we sit under the judgment of God. But thankfully, that's not where the story of Exodus ends. In Exodus, what do we see? We see God making a way. We see God making a way. In fact, if you look closely, you are going to see that in Exodus, Exodus, in the very place of God's judgment 
is the very place of God's salvation. Think about that. The waters of chaos, the waters of fear, the waters of judgment that swallow up Pharaoh and his army are also the waters of salvation. And so it is with the cross. On the cross, we see a brutal and bloody death. The judgment of God upon the sin of humanity. My sin, your sin. And yet it is here in the place of judgment that we also see God's great salvation. By dying our death, the death for sin, Jesus is disarming the evil one and defeating our greatest enemy. Just as God swallowed up Pharaoh and his chariots, so in Jesus we see death swallowed up and defeated. Right? Three days later, after being submerged in the depths of death, our Jesus is raised up. He's raised historically, he's raised spiritually, he's raised physically, he's raised eternally. Jesus is raised victoriously. He is Lord, he is King, he is supreme and he is sovereign over all. And in this, what has God done? God has made a way. God has made a way for the guilty. God has made a way for those who are broken and bruised. God has made a way for those who have made a train wreck of their life. God makes a way. Jesus himself says, I tell you the truth. Listen to these words. Whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be condemned. Note this. He has crossed over from death to life. When I was talking to Freddie and he was wrestling with his mistakes and his sin, he shared with me that when he was younger, he recalled how Jesus used to hang out with sinners. And he's kind of grasped at that. And I said, that's true, Freddie. Jesus would have been the kind of guy who would have been right here in the car yard with you and with me and all these other guys. Jesus was the friend of sinners because he forgives sinners. Freddie says, well, how many sins will he forgive? I say 70 times seven. And he starts adding this up. I'm like, no, that's not the point, Freddie. Romans 8 verse 1 says this, Freddie. For therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Jesus. I say the key here is that we are in Jesus. It's not about your good works. It's not about how bad your past is. It's not even about your resolve right now to get back on the straight and narrow. It's about Jesus and being in him and knowing him and trusting and believing him because in him, God has made a way. The crucial point here is not actually how good you are or how bad you are. The crucial question for us all is, are you in Jesus? Look at this final, final section. Thus the Lord, verse 30, thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians. And Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians. So the people feared the Lord 
and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. What does God's salvation mean for Israel? What does God's salvation mean for you and for me? Well, if you are a Christian today, the good news of Jesus means you are no longer held by worldly fear. You don't need to run and hide. In Jesus, you can be assured right now of his salvation. It is yours, right? Jesus has silenced the the commands and demands of the accuser. God has dealt with your sin. God has defeated your death. He has brought you through. You have now crossed over from death to life. And so rather than sitting under the demands of the evil one, rather than sitting under the weight of condemnation and death, you and me, we sit, we rest in the salvation of Jesus. You've been saved from death. You've been saved from sin. You've been saved from the darkness of the evil one. And you've not just been delivered from those things, you've been delivered to God. You've gone from death to life. You've gone from despair to hope. You've gone from indifference and hate to God's abiding and eternal and steadfast love. That is the love and life that is now yours. That is the love and life that we get to pursue and embrace and enjoy. And if you are here today and you are not yet a Christian, then please see what Jesus has done for you. When it comes to life and death, when it comes to heaven and hell, the question is not, is there a way of salvation? The question is always, are you willing to trust Jesus and believe in Jesus? Now is the time for you, wherever you are, to raise a hand for Jesus, to trust Jesus, to give your life to him. If you put in your if you put your trust in Jesus today, if you raise a hand and say I'm going to follow Jesus from this moment, you will move from death to life. You'll receive the fullness of God's blessing, a genuine abiding and secure love. You'll no longer be under his judgment, you'll be an inheritor of his grace. And it won't be easy. Right To step off the banks of Egypt is not easy, it's difficult. And there are going to be times where you feel the pressure and the pull to go back. But Jesus is your hope. Right, Jesus is your hope. For Israel, they didn't have another way. It was through the Red Sea or it was death. And the same is true for you and the same is true for me. Jesus is the way, he is the truth, and Jesus is the life. Let's go to him now in prayer. Father, we thank you that you pursue us, that you seek us out, even in the midst of our own sin, even in the midst of our fear and our rebellion, you pursue us and you embrace us and you make a way. We thank you that Jesus has defeated our enemies. We thank you that Jesus has taken on our sin. We thank you that Jesus has put death to death. Help us, Lord God, to take a hold of Jesus and all that we have in him. Help us to receive his grace. Help us to pursue his mercy. Help us to live in his love. We thank you, Lord, 
Would you fill us now by your Spirit that we would live holy and pleasing lives for you? We pray this in Jesus' name. And all of God's people said, Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au.